McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. Welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli. I am very excited to bring you this week's bonus episode, which is an interview with David Stasavage, Dean for the Social Sciences and a political scientist at NYU and the author of The Decline and Rise of Democracy, A Global History from Antiquity to Today, which was published by Princeton University Press in 2020. But the exciting thing about this interview is that I didn't do it. In fact, it was done by a Penn State student. Joey Piccarello is a political science student at the Penn State World Campus, which is Penn State's online arm. He is maybe the most well-read person on democracy I've ever met outside of Michael, Chris, and Candace, who co-host this show. He just has such a, a deep knowledge about the kind of canon of, of books and thinkers that shape you know, academic discourse on democracy. And he brings a lot of that to this interview with David. Uh, Joey found this book and suggested it to me. Uh, and I knew that he would be far more well prepared than I to do this interview. And he did a great job with it. So uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation between Joey Piccarello and David Stasavage. Professor Stasavage, welcome to the Democracy Works podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here virtually. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I've read your wonderful book. It's The Decline and Rise of Democracy. And throughout the book, you use terms like democracy, autocracy, bureaucracy. Uh, can you define those terms in your own words? So it, it, it's a book where I try to define democracy very broadly, because when people think about democracy today and you ask them, what does democracy mean? Uh, very commonly will say elections, you know, free elections, free and fair elections with uh, multiple candidates from multiple political parties. And I want to suggest that that's not a definition of democracy. That's a definition of a contemporary form of democracy that we have. Democracy itself has a sort of deeper meaning about trying to give power to the people. And today, elections are the means by which we try to achieve that. But there have been other means of trying to give power to the people in, in other societies uh, in the past. Um, autocracy, I think of as being basically the opposite of, of democracy in the sense of it's one person who's ruling without any explicit consent uh, of, of the governed. And they often do that successfully by ruling through a bureaucracy. That is, rather than relying on members of society to counsel them, say, in an assembly or legislature or council, they... Uh, rule through subordinates who they themselves have chosen uh, and who they pay and remunerate and can, you know, hire and fire uh, more or less at will. So that's the way I define those three broad terms. So at the beginning of the book, you sort of challenge the Western notion that there's this, that uh, democracy was born in Greece, it died out, it was reborn in Rome, and then we have to fast forward a couple thousand years or a thousand change years to get to England's version of democracy. But you mentioned that there's different forms of democracy in the Huron, in uh, Mesoamerica. Could you sort of go into detail on those different kinds of democracies? Yeah. So I, I, I think that we have to acknowledge the contribution of the Greeks and the fact that they gave us the word democracy itself, uh, which they called uh, democratia, meaning giving uh, power to the the demos, the people, uh, and they invented a language for thinking about democracy, which has been very useful and powerful for us. Uh, but 
they were not the only society in early times to govern themselves without uh, an autocratic leader. In fact, if you look around the world, as you just referred to, there were numerous other societies that have governed themselves, and I'm going to suggest a, a democratic way, uh, by having collective leadership in councils or assemblies. And so the, uh, the example of the Huron uh, in uh, present day, what is now Ontario, uh, provide uh, one example of that, uh, or they referred to themselves as the Wendats, we should give them their proper name, uh, had a very elaborate system of village councils, tribal councils, confederation councils for governing themselves and decided upon things. And they did have chiefs, but they had chiefs who could be selected and deselected. And so in the end, it's a system where they didn't have a word democracy that they called it. They hadn't read Plato or Aristotle, but they succeeded in governing themselves in a very collective fashion. And we can find other examples uh, like that as, 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 I, as I list in the book. So then considering this, that the democracy was sort of found in the Mediterranean uh, area, the, the Greek states, and uh, later in Rome, and then even uh, earlier in uh, the Americas, does that, do you think that means that humans are naturally driven towards democratic governance? Yeah, I, I think naturally in the sense of that is one way in which we organize ourselves. Uh, it is not the only way we organize ourselves. So I say it's natural, but it's not inevitable. And humans have this characteristic relative to other species of primates that we have social groupings that are sometimes very hierarchical and sometimes very egalitarian. And that's interesting when you think about the fact that other spe species of primates tend to either be strictly hierarchical or fairly strictly egalitarian without sort of sh simultaneously observing two different patterns uh, between two different groups of the same species. So democracy is something that has come naturally to, to humans. Um, so then uh, kind of expanding on that, uh, what conditions would you consider necessary for early democracy? Well, uh, one of the apart from just having the institutions of a council itself, which was really the, the, cru the, the, the crucial institution for early democracy, I, I suggest in the, that this was more likely to survive, first of all, in small-scale settings, that it's always been a challenge to, um, to, to uh, scale up democracy to, to higher levels. Uh, it's something that has existed often in lieu of a state bureaucracy, because uh, if someone didn't have bureaucrats to rule through, uh, they would be forced to uh, rely on other members of a, of a village or of a, of a group or a larger regional grouping in order to aid them in, in ruling. Uh, and so, and it was also common in, in settings where people had a way out if they didn't like what was going on. If they had a way out, they could move elsewhere and reestablish themselves. And that provided a check on the power of anyone who might try to assert ultimate authority and rule on their own uh, without sort of collective collective consent. Um, um, so when we think of states like, um, or I guess areas like, uh, or particularly like China, where Chinese style autocracy has sort of been dominant over um, now thousands of years, why do you, why do you think that is necessarily? Why do you think that China itself has this, or the, the Chinese area uh, here. Actually, sorry, let me rephrase this from the beginning. Um, so when we look towards China in the East, we see these uh, 
areas like uh, Russia and China that seem almost adverse to democracy? Why do you think that is? So for China, I think a lot of the understanding the early development of the Chinese state, uh, you need to, to, to think about a few features. First of all, uh, right from its inception uh, under the, the Shang dynasty, um, way back in the second millennium uh, before the Common Era, uh, China was a large polity. China was never a small polity like that. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is that these early Chinese dynasties, uh, dynasties emerged on a large plateau along the Yellow River in North China that had a certain type of soil um, called Los, I don't uh, uh, you know, L-O-E-S-S, uh, it's a German word, that was very fine and very particular and very easy to work with very simple tools and allowed the establishment of a form of fairly high yield agriculture where you could have a concentrated population. Um, and I think that helped explain why you could have a large scale society like that with a lot of people packed together and where ultimately uh, rulers were able to establish a, a top down uh, pattern of uh, social organization instead of having to rely on village councils or things like that in order to, 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 to make things run. So it's, it's a very long running uh, phenomenon. I don't want to say that geography was determinant uh, because it, that's, a, that's a sort of dangerous argument to try to make. But I think geography in this case helped tip things in and pointed in one direction. Um, okay, now shifting sort of towards uh, the back towards the, the West and the United States, you mentioned uh, the early years of the United States democracy, uh, that they had these subsidies for newspapers, and this helped sort of reinforce and spread democratic culture across uh, the, the colonies. But when we think about the media now, uh, we also think about how sort of we consider the media more biased, partisan, and even inaccurate than it once was before. But you make the argument that the news sort of was always partisan. It always had this sort of biased tilt. But do you think that that's now more coercive, or do you think the effects sort of are similar? Yeah, I, I think it, so. It, it's definitely the case if you go back, for example, to the election of 1800, uh, which resulted in our first true turnover from one party to another, from the the, the Federalists to the Jeffersonians, uh, that there was a very partisan newspaper press at the time that had said where people wrote all sorts of nasty things that are as nasty as what are written today, um, but that ultimately it was at least useful that people had some sort of information, I think, because coming back to that story of uh, subsidizing newspaper circulation, the, the founders in the U.S. realized very soon after the ratification of the Constitution that while we have a very, very large, sparsely populated country in which there's a real question of how this is going to hang together at all if people have no information whatsoever about government. And so they passed this thing called this, uh, this Postal Service Act of 1792, which sounds really banal, but was actually really important because that subsidized the delivery of newspapers anywhere in the in the 13 uh, U.S. states for the price, almost anywhere for the price of a penny. And so it helped spur the development of newspaper circulation. 
Uh, I think that was very useful for binding people to the government so they could actually know what was happening, even if the press wound up being, in many cases, quite partisan. I think today, of course, we have another era of very farce, uh, very fierce uh, partisanship uh, and media uh, being polarizing, uh, whether you're talking about social media, whether you're talking about traditional broadcast media. Um, but we do still have information usefully. I think the bigger issue today is more that we're, we could drown in information if we wanted to. It's just but the information we get, it feels like the quality of it has gotten cheapened over time. In your book, you talk about the um, the expansion and the uh, the increase in sort of technology leading towards the demise of democracy. Can you kind of expand on that? Yeah, I, I think it comes back to this question of how to what extent do those who rule need members of society to help them out by providing information, by providing counsel, and. One of the ways in which technology historically has sometimes uh, weighed against democracy, uh, early democracy in particular, is if technologies emerge that allow rulers to track uh, their, their people more easily, to know what was going on, to know what people are producing and so on. So various agricultural innovations that have made agriculture more predictable and regular sort of point in that direction. Um, in many ways, uh, in some cases, the development of writing, of course, we think of being intimately linked to democracy, but could also be used to record things uh, and, and track people. Um, and today, of course, in autocratic states, we have uh, another phenomenon where increasingly we have the use of modern, uh, newly developed surveillance technologies to know what people are doing. And so here again, we're seeing that it's not that technology always pushes uh, against democracy, but there can be major technological innovations that do have that effect. So this, so throughout the book, obviously the theme of democracy, uh, here, let me start again. Throughout the book, uh, this theme of bureaucracy expanding leads to, uh, or at least an early democracy often leads to autocracy, as you said. But when we think of modern democracies nowadays, we think of these largely expanded bureaucracies and at the same time they're sort of they they help the administration of the state uh sort of persist as a democracy do you i mean do you disagree with that or no that, that i completely agree and that's the the interesting question of course is uh anyone listening to this might say well don't we have bureaucracies in the u.s and elsewhere today and some people would say like if you're ted cruz well let's get rid of the irs because that's you know <laughs> leading to uh you know um leading away from democratic government or something like that. But most people wouldn't say that. Uh, they'd recognize that, the, you know, bureaucracy in the U.S. isn't necessarily the enemy of democracy. And I think the key reason of that, is, reason for that is it has to do with an issue of sequencing. If societies start off by developing a bureaucracy very early on, before they have long established traditions of collective governance, then it's a lot harder to establish democracy subsequently. If on the other hand, you have a society like ours uh, that had a long tradition of collective governance prior to establishing a state bureaucracy, then it's possible for uh, a, a, a ruler and uh, their people or the people's representatives to sort of jointly determine how the bureaucracy is used and make sure that it's not used in order to cement 
autocratic rule. So if bureaucracy comes first, it's harder to get to democracy. If democracy is established for a, a time um, at the level you're at, then, then you could subsequently establish a bureaucracy without having to necessarily uh, then uh, undermine your, your, your system of collective government. So then you would sort of bouncing off of that, um, it is sort of unfathomable when you think of 20 years ago, you think of the expansion of the internet and you think that, uh, oh, this will lead to um, much more sort of a democratic distribution of information and it'll lead to a more democratic culture generally. But since 2016, it feels that uh, the internet and democratic culture has sort of, or that democracy itself has sort of been backsliding. Yeah, and I think I think it's important to emphasize um, how the internet is developed. It's also important to emphasize precursors to that, like the fact that we have a very partisan um, broadcast media today in a way that was not true in, say, the 1950s or the 1960s. I think that's contributed to things. But but coming back to the internet, it's you know it is um, as, just as you said, it's basically very. Uh, striking how initially it seemed like, well, of course, this will allow people to connect at a distance and that can only be good. You know, just like thinking about the, the example of the founding fathers and how people would be connected to government government, and they do it through newspapers. Well, the internet should be allowed, should allow you to do that as well. Shouldn't we all be able to sit down and have it much more access to high quality information about what is going on and what our leaders are doing and then make better decisions about whether to reelect them or whether to choose someone new. Uh, and unfortunately, it doesn't seem yet uh, like it's worked out that, that way. And so the consensus today seems to be that uh, social media has had a negative impact on democracy, though, again, I think that's, you know, it's early days and the jury may still be out on that one. But what for me, uh, it, 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 it feels like what was not anticipated was that in having so much information available to our, at our fingertips, that a lot of this information would have a certain sort of cheapened quality to it, that it wouldn't feel like it was really providing any additional things that we didn't know about already, that it wouldn't prompt us to change our beliefs about, about someone. Uh, and so that's, I think, the, the crucial question going forward. Is there any sort of alternative form of organization for online communication that wouldn't lead to that feeling like you're having a cheapened um, form of, uh, of getting, getting, getting your, getting your news. You wouldn't consider the expansion of the internet to be almost like an expansion of bureaucracy and, uh, or at that, even on the other side, maybe the expansion of the internet being too much democracy. Well, that's that's the other side, right? Of course, so we could talk about people connecting with each other and with um, influencers on social media, but we can also talk about, you know, what I already referred to with regard to surveillance technology, and that obviously all of this is enabled by the internet greatly in a way that allows governments to monitor their people, and and, and unfortunately, there are a, you know a significant number of autocratic governments today that use that very effectively. Um, to sort of keep people down. And so that's, that's also a very, a very worrying trend. Uh, so then jumping back to uh, democratic backsliding, 
um, and stepping away from the internet piece of it, uh, what does your book tell us about why democratic backsliding is occurring? Is there some sort of historical link to the past, or is it is this a new sort of uh, is this a new sort of democratic backsliding that's occurring? I, I don't think it's new. I, I don't think it's new. There are periods where this has happened in the past. There are periods where this will happen again in the future. I'm sure. Uh, to me, what's striking in the U.S. case, certainly, but probably also in other cases, is uh, we need to realize that demo- maintaining a modern democracy on a large scale setting uh, requires repeated investments and new forms of investment to keep people connected to each other uh, and to keep pe- 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 people connected to government. Uh, in, in the U.S., I feel like in a post-war era that in many cases was very successful and where democracy seemed to be prospering, uh, we, sort of, we ended up forgetting that at some point. And we had the impression that, well, we have a great democracy because we have a great constitution, we have a system that was set up and now it sort of runs on its own. And there wasn't enough uh, thought given to the fact that, well, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe we need new investments. Maybe we need new bargains to be struck um, in a way that, uh, you know, maybe we need a new equivalent of the Postal Service Act of 1792, right? And I just think that sort of whole idea got away from us. So you mentioned the Constitution. Uh, when, when I feel like when people of my generation look at the Constitution – and not even just my generation, a lot of uh, democratic scholars look at the constitution as a sort of, um, as a protection against tyranny, sure, primarily, but also uh, creating a lot of minoritarian institutions. I think that there's a, there's an argument to the fact that over the years, America has sort of moved away from being so worried about uh, the majority overrunning the minority and we're at a point where it's now uh, there's a tyranny of the minority. Uh, do you think that there's sort of any um, is any historical uh, or not just historical, but in in your book, do you think that there's any example of uh, this sort of occurring before? And what do you say about? Um, yeah, I mean, I I, I think uh, we need to realize that the it's true the the Constitution was set up. Uh, to make change, drastic change, difficult. Uh, it was set up by people who were worried about um, old-style democracy. For them, democracy was a dirty word. Uh, and the lesson they drew from the Athenian democracy or from other Greek democracies was what these things were chaotic and collapsed. And so somehow we needed an institutional framework in which things would be stabilized, where you wouldn't have that chaos. Uh, But that was all thought of in an environment where there was not an anticipation of uh, sharp um, polarization between two large political groupings, our our two political parties. And so our institutions do in many ways allow at times a minority to to entrench itself. And I know, of course, um, Steve Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt are coming out with a, a great book called Tyranny of the Minority soon. Um, and so 
I, I think this is something we, we need to think about going forward. It's unfortunately because our constitution is so difficult to change. It's unclear what, what we can do about it. But I'd say also, I, I think we're very finely balanced in terms of our presidential elections and other elections. But I mean, think of how long it's been before someone won the popular vote by 10 points, uh, 10 percentage points for the presidency, which used to happen, right? And it's just, we're also finely divided. Um, that that has a feature of it as well, I think, that that sort of, when you run that through a system where change is difficult, then um, that's really going to make change even all the more difficult. Towards the end of your book, uh, from at least how I read it, uh, it appears that you have at least some reservations about uh, the potential effects of representative democracy on democratic culture, about how it sort of isolates the individual from the democracy itself. Uh, do you think that the pros of democ- representative democracy outweigh the cons? Or if not, uh, what sort of democracy do you think would be preferable? I mean, I think it's it's a system that we've, well, I didn't come up with it, that people have come up with uh, that has been effective at uh, running uh, a democracy at a larger scale than existed beforehand. Uh, but I think we it, it's coming back to that issue of us needing to recognize the potential weaknesses of modern democracy and, and try to see what we can do to, 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 to mitigate them. Uh, everybody gets, every adult gets the chance to, to, to politically participate today, but uh, we participate in a fairly thin way compared to the way that people would have participated in a village council among the, the Huron. Uh, our participation is often very sporadic. Uh, you know, most people, if they participate politically at all, it's only by voting every few years. And that's it. And when you have that, you're going to have the, you know, a, a risk that people become ultimately disconnected from government and see it as a distant thing and a problem uh, and not recognize that if you want to maintain this democratic system, it's up to you, the people, to try to do something. It's not up to someone else to try to figure it out. Uh, so then in that case, how would you... Um... How would you suggest that people do get more involved in? Uh, in well, and, and part of it is, you know, I, I think people are less involved in membership of political parties, less involved in associations than they than they used to be. Uh, participation has declined. I think, uh, you know, coming back to again the example of connecting people via high quality sources of information. Uh, that is something that could be helped. Uh, one of the things that's happening today is local news uh, papers are disappearing at an alarming rate. Um, you could think of, well, the problem there being that local news is often one of the most trusted news sources and connecting people to government. So should we be subsidizing local news perhaps so it stays around? Uh, should we be thinking about uh, re-energizing the idea of civic education so that people actually learn about American government uh, in school and learn uh, how it's supposed to operate and what your role is in helping it to, uh, to operate. So I was looking through some of the other works that you've done, and you've, you've, you've written a lot about um, tax policy and taxing the rich and inequality as well as democracy. Uh, Robert Dahl and his most famous work on democracy talks about 
the sometimes cooperative but sometimes adversarial relationship between democracy and capitalism. Uh, how do you personally view the entanglement between capitalism and modern democracy? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's hard to say it better than 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 Dahl did, and that, that you just said it about sometimes sometimes aiding, sometimes sometimes hindering. Uh, I I think what I've tried to emphasize in some of my work is that democracy and inequality in practice have often coexisted in a surprising way and that you might have thought that a democratic system would naturally produce policies uh, that are in the benefit of the many to reduce inequality because it's the many who are, you know, should be determining the outcome of voting, uh, of elections. Um, And in practice, that hasn't happened. Uh, And if you go back to Western Europe in the 19th century, paradoxically, I think one of the reasons why elites who were initially quite scared of electoral democracy and the idea of universal male suffrage learned over time that maybe this wasn't so bad after all because democracy wasn't going to uh, result in wholesale expropriation of, of of their wealth. And so you have a phenomenon where democracy is allowed to exist and emerge um, precisely because people see that it might have done less for inequality than than one of some people would have initially hoped. So then, why do you think why do you think that is then that people sort of it would make it would almost make sense uh, it makes sense why the the founders of or our founders were so worried about. Um, expanding suffrage it would lead to their their own property sort of being um, expropriated, like you said. But why do you think that people don't immediately reach for something like that? Why do you think that people sort of restrict themselves? Yeah, so it's, 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 a, it's a good question because if you come back to the, uh, the American um, – System, the American Constitution, as we discussed, it, 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 it's one of it's you know it's it, it comes in at a very early stage for modern democracy, and the institutions are designed and influenced by this fear that sort of the masses could expropriate the few, and so the institutions are set up to help to filter all that to make that difficult to happen. And then what's interesting is when you get the emergence of uh, widespread. Uh, adult male suffrage in places like France or Great Britain or elsewhere in Western Europe, those are countries that don't have the same degree of institutional checks and balances that we are uh, provided for by our constitution, yet they don't get expropriation there either, right? So nor do they get um, uh, significant um, uh, policies that reduce inequality for some time. So... What's interesting then, it has to be something other than the design of the institutions that's added. And I think, you know, one possibility, which I think operates in a lot of cases, is that um, we all may have the same vote, but people with more money are able to influence the vote and influence the policy process more. And so that's part of the explanation. But I think part of the explanation also has to do with the fact that often people's views about economic policy are uh, determined and influenced by sort of underlying ideas of what fairness, um, what standards of fairness comes to play, particularly in regard to taxation. And a lot of people, even if they're not rich, just don't think we should have extremely high tax rates on the rich because they think, well, if someone's worked hard and they got their money that way, then they should be allowed to keep a fairly large share of it. So you would agree democracy does not by itself 
solve the issue of inequality. No. Right. Right. It, it establishes formal political equality, but that it sort of stops at that. Right. Do you think that perhaps that um, as you expand democracy to more people, increase the vote, uh, increase the, the access to the ballot box, I mean, that it would that the um, that would perhaps lead to um, a, a diminishing inequality, or do you think that it's just that people are people, people think the way that they do, and it's that's just the fact of yeah. I mean, I think in the twentieth century, uh, the the big movements with regard to government policy to address inequality were often heavily influenced. They didn't arrive as soon as everybody, all adult males had the vote. They arrived in a context where all adult males and eventually all adults had the vote, but also we had, the, we had these tremendous shocks of, you know, the First World War, the Great Depression, the Second World War, then often made people think more about, okay, I, maybe I have a different attitude now of what sort of policy should be adopted. Maybe there should be more of a spirit of uh, shared sacrifice if, you know, if everybody uh, sacrificed in the wartime, then uh, shouldn't there be some sort of equal sacrifice, shared sacrifice with regard to how we finance our budgets as well or something like that? So I think it was those major shocks that helped drive things, that helped often um, create new uh, understandings of what it meant to be fair with regard to government policy to, uh, to address poverty and inequality. So we're going to put a link to your book in the show notes. Thank you for your time today. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you.